episode 222 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and I'm joined by Les Klinger, the ultimate multi-hyphenate for the crime fiction community, uh, which includes being the co-founder of this podcast to talk about eight, so far, volumes of the Library of Congress crime classic series that he edited, introduced, and annotated. So let's talk about crime fiction. Let's talk about crime fiction. So this project had um, such a, it has a lovely origin story. Uh, our, our dear friend, Barbara Peters, um, who is the proprietor of the Poison Pen Bookstore and uh, formerly the owner of the Poison Pen Press, it's now part of Sourcebooks, uh, has been the distributor for the British Library's series of Golden Age mystery classics. And being the astute uh, bookseller that she is, she noticed it's doing very well. Uh, they have something like 80 titles out already. And um, it's that series is edited by our friend Martin Edwards. Um, and it's been very popular and she's made money. The British Library has made money and readers have gotten to refresh their recollections in some cases and discover in other cases wonderful books from the golden age of mystery. Uh, so Barbara, being a smart person, said, why aren't we doing this in America? Um, now Barbara, in her younger days, um, actually worked at the Library of Congress. This is very, very early in her career. Uh, and she had friends there. And her husband, Robert Rosenwald, also has a connection with the library because his grandfather, Julius Rosenwald, donated a massive collection of rare books to the, um, to the library many years ago. And there is a Rosenwald Library at the Library of Congress. Uh, Barbara called some friends at the library and then called me and said, I have this idea that we pitch the Library of Congress on doing the same thing that the Brits are doing for American crime classics. Would you be interested, Les? And I said, of course. Uh, the three of us then uh, hopped on a plane and flew to Washington and met with the publishing arm of the Library of Congress. I didn't even know there was a publishing arm, but they publish, historically, they published maybe three, four books a year, um, mainly focused on the collection, but they might be art books, they might be children's books, um, architecture, all kinds of things. Well, they loved the idea, and um, they took the idea even a step further than we had and said, why don't we also include art from the Library of Congress collection as the covers. Um, so that was how this got started. This started in the summer of 2018, I guess, maybe, maybe 2019. Who's, who remembers time anymore? 2018, I think, is when we at least had the initial conversations. So then we got to the next step, which was, well, which books? Um, so they said to me, Les, what do you want to do? You know, what books? And I sat down and I made a list of, you know, maybe 20 or 30 books. Um, and, and our criteria were that, A, it had to be not just fun, but um, with a small s, a significant book. Um, not uh, number 27 of the Perry Masons, you know, and so on. Uh, just something noteworthy. Uh, I actually second, think you 
you said it, uh, I read all the introductions of the eight books so far, and I think you actually, in your introduction to The Rat Began to Gnaw the Rope, you wrote, as in, as in the case of all the books we've selected of inclusion as a Library of Congress crime classic, it is a valuable picture of American life at a specific date in our country's history with an accurate portrayal of the attitudes and behaviors of the time. Second, and I think this is the most important, it helped shape the future of crime writing. I think the choices that you made, you've got- a, Significant. A significant They're of all the crime fiction subgenres because you've got procedurals, amateur detectives, procedural amateur detective mashups, legal thrillers, uh, sort right. of nascent CSI investigations and humor. And right. these books that you've chosen precede the 20th century, where we, which we think of the golden age of, of crime fiction as being sort of post-World War II, uh, by decades, like some of them, Some of them, not all of them, but some of them, yes. So, you know, I started with this long list, and then we got to the interesting part, which is that, so the library was intent on not um, in any way sort of censoring or bodlerizing the list, we weren't going to stick to politically correct books. Um, we weren't going to look particularly for offensive materials, um, but certainly <laughs> that wasn't our aim to offend, but we didn't want to limit ourselves to books that might uh, satisfy today's standards of political correctness. Um, for the very reason that you said, which is that I think it's important to reflect on our history as a country um, so that we can learn from it. Uh, so we, we wanted to span the time period. We, we said, well, look, you know, the uh, um, mystery fiction in America, with the exception of Edgar Allan Poe, really started in the 1860s. That'll be our beginning date. Our ending date will probably be what I'm very sad to say is now regarded as historical fiction, namely the 1960s. But, uh, you know, that's kind of the time frame. is that that century, from the 1860s to the 1960s. So we tried to pick good stuff worth reading and probably things that are out of print, either out of print or, or in a very limited edition, um, very difficult to find in many cases. Um, and stuff that sort of slipped out of the spotlight. It's not on the top of people's minds when they think of uh, classic books. So, for example, we're probably not going to do The Circular Staircase by Mary Roberts Reinhardt because it's in print. It's a well-known book. It's in print. Uh, th there are others that, could, you know, as I said, I mentioned we're probably not going to do any Chandler, probably not going to do any, any Hammond because they're in print. People have already read them. They paid attention to them. Uh, they, they get the attention they should. I'm more interested in titles that aren't getting the attention that they deserve. So, I mean, it's a, as you can see from the list, and we should talk a little bit about each of the books, I guess. Um, it's, a, it's a disparate list. It's eclectic. It's unusual. And I, I'm excited to tell you what's coming after this list, too. So we're basically putting out four books a year. Um, 
In terms of format, these are trade paperbacks. They have beautiful covers from beautiful the library collection. They're really uh, beautiful. There is there is a, an introduction by me to each of the books, um, putting it in context and and sort of discussing why why did we pick this book? Well, what's significant about it, and so on. There's an about the author section that's uh, more than a paragraph. It's typically three or four pages bio. There are uh, discussion group questions because I we very much hope that these books will end up being used in classrooms, book clubs, um, and other kinds of reading groups, libraries, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, further reading and annotations. Now, these are not my, you know, these are not the kind of heavily annotated books that I have done. Uh, these are, I always describe them as lightly annotated. Um, mainly, I'm, I'm interested in glossary and things that we've just forgotten about, that aren't recognizable anymore. They were household items, they were customs, they were public figures, and now we don't know who they are. So they, they need a footnote just to help the reader remember those things, or in some cases, they couldn't possibly remember them. So the, it's, you know, typical volume has maybe 30 to 40 footnotes, and that's it. Um, and so that's the format. So the first one we did uh, was one of my very favorite books um, by Anna Catherine Green. Anna Catherine Green, often referred to as the mother of American crime fiction. Um, certainly the first great commercial success as a crime writer, published dozens of books during her career. Uh, it's called That Affair Next Door. And it's notable because, it's notable for many reasons. I mean, Green herself was an inspiration to a generation of women writers after her. Agatha Christie certainly knew her work, um, as did many other women writers. Mary Roberts Reinhardt, who I mentioned. Um, she says, Reinhardt told a story in her autobiography that when she had finished her first novel and went to find a publisher, she pulled off the latest book by uh, Anna Catherine Green from the shelf, looked at who that publisher was and said, okay, I'll go to them. Um, so That Affair Next Door is notable because it introduces Miss Amelia Butterworth. Amelia Butterworth is a spinster um, she is a nosy next door neighbor who gets involved in a, a murder that's committed next door. Uh, and she works with the police, but her, she's kind of, you know, she sees it as a kind of a rivalry, uh, with detective inspector Grice, detective Grice, Ebenezer Grice, who becomes her sort of uh, Lieutenant Trask, if you will, uh, for the entire series. And there are a number, there are I think five or six different uh, Amelia Butterworth books. Amelia Butterworth was also clearly the model for Miss Marple. Um, so that book is a delight. Um, 1897 is when it was published. And, you know, talking about sort of political correctness, she's an upper class woman. Um, she doesn't have a high regard for servants. Uh, she uses some slang words in a couple places that are disrespectful words for people of color. Uh, she doesn't use the N-word, but um, close. Uh, and, uh, but she's very much a woman of the time. And we talked at some length. So I, I was talking about the process. 
So we debate back and forth the titles. I don't get to pick the titles. I nominate titles. Uh, the library people think about it. They actually have beta readers who will read the books. And in some cases they've said, yeah, we thought it was boring. Um, so it's a, it's a group decision about the titles. But this title led off the series and uh, was I, I was thrilled to do that book. The next one uh, couldn't be more different. Uh, it's called the, the Rat Began to Gnaw the Rope, uh, written by C.W. Grafton, published in 1943. And Grafton was the father of Sue Grafton. Uh, he loved reading. He taught his children to read, uh, to, to appreciate reading uh, and writing. Uh, he was a lawyer. He was a municipal bond lawyer who did this sort of on the side and didn't write very many books. He only wrote four books. Wrote four, yeah. Uh, this was intended to be the beginning of a series. Uh, there is a second one in the series, and sadly, he never got to complete the series. The fairy tale title, it's from the fairy tale about um, the witch going to the market. It's a long fairy tale. Uh, it, it's, it's great. It's hard-boiled, sort of, um, but it's funny. And uh, the, the protagonist, Gil Henry, is this uh, sort of middle-aged, uh, overweight, kind of dumpy guy uh, who gets thrust into a mystery and uh, handles himself very well, very reflective of sort of 19, early 1940s attitudes. It's funny. It's, it's a smart mystery. And I think it had an influence on the uh, idea that there could be humor in mysteries. Well, I have to say, it's, it's the only one of the eight that I read, and I was attracted to it because it was Sue Grafton's father. But in reading it, I saw the seeds of uh, Kinsey Milhome in this in this character, this sort of cascading um, adventures and misadventures, and and not I don't want to use the word ridiculous, but just kind of an absurdist setup of how things can go very very wrong, uh, which often happened to Kinsey. But I also saw uh, you know I just think that Elmore Leonard and Tim Dorsey must have read him because it's, yeah. it's that kind of and it is it's not it's not knee slapping funny but it is really darkly darkly humorous so yeah i'm very it glad is. that that book was included well good so I mean, there's there's more you will get to another humorous one uh, at the end of the published books now so the next one up was case pending by del shannon um published in 1960. This is the first of her novels about Detective Luis Mendoza. Uh, Mendoza is uh, a Hispanic detective in the Los Angeles Police Department. Um, this is uh, not very long after the Zoot Suit riots and all that, so there's still a lot of attitudes. Now, he's Spanish um, by descent, so there is some class distinction there between the Mexicans and the Spanish, but um, it's a compelling story. It, Shannon is an interesting writer. She was a prolific writer, wrote something like, uh, she wrote under three different names. Uh, she wrote something, I think in excess of 40 books. Uh, she was pretty conservative. She was a member of the John Birch Society um, and certainly not a liberal lefty, but nonetheless, she wrote this very sympathetic book um, and and others 
about um, the police interactions with the minority communities of Los Angeles. It's a it's a procedural. It's but it's a procedural with a very smart detective. It's not just a procedural. It but it's really a very good uh, depiction of a police department in action. Um, it's not quite. We'll get to we'll get to an even finer procedural with less of a hero uh, in a minute. But this is this was a terrific book, and so far this is the newest in terms of publication date um, of the books in the sense that it came out in 1960. We haven't gone any farther forward from 1960 yet, but we're talking about a couple, which uh, we'll we'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, we then swung back to the past and a wonderful book called Final Proof, very rare book now to find, very expensive for collectors. Um, a collection of short stories by uh, Rodriguez Otto Lengui, published in 1898. Otto Lengui was an Orthodox Jew from South Carolina. He moved to Brooklyn and took up dentistry. And he was one of the founders of the ADA, it was very important in the dental movement and the growth of dentistry in, in, in the United States. He was also one of the first to explore forensic dentistry. And um, this is a collection of short stories. Uh, he has a novel featuring the same detectives, uh, a police detective named Jack Barnes and an amateur detective named uh, Robert Mitchell. Um, the stories are great. They're uh, clever. Um, and uh, sophisticated mysteries, um, very much influenced by the Sherlock Holmes stories, but not copies of Sherlock Holmes, because there is a very active police detective here who is just as smart, or almost as smart, as his partner. So that's the first of our short story collections. We'll get to a couple others in a few minutes. Next up was Hilary Waugh's wonderful novel, Last Scene Wearing. Last Scene Wearing is probably, I mean, it's, it's often called the first true police procedural. Um, it's and published in 1952. Uh, it, not only is it really a, a very good um, depiction of the way a police investigation works, um, it also is very reflective of the times. Uh, it involves sexual mores of the of the time, uh, the late 40s and early 1950s. Uh, very interesting to me. It was published almost at the same time as uh, as the uh, uh, the Kinsey report, um, which led people to be shocked by what was going on in America. Um, and uh, I mean, I, without without ruining the story, I can say that it starts out with a, a young woman, she's, this is all set at a college. And uh, she's a, I think she's a junior in college at a women's school and she goes missing. And the immediate assumption is that she is off in hiding, having an abortion. I will not spoil the story any further, but that's, that's an important element of sort of why we chose it, because I think it's very it's it's a very good depiction of the mores of the late '40s, early '50s. Um, we then jump over to a short story collection again. This one is one of my faves. It's the American Sherlock Holmes, Craig Kennedy. Uh, he was a university professor 
who used science to help catch criminals. Uh, published in 1912, this was the first of a lot of Craig Kennedy stories. Kennedy had a very long career. The author, Arthur Reeve, um, made a big commercial success out of him, and yet nobody's heard of him anymore. I mean, he's sort of long gone, but he was, there were radio shows, there were movies, there were lots of short stories and, and novels and so on, and he vanished. But worth reading. Um, they are very clever stories, very imaginative, um, in a way kind of Sherlockian, but interestingly, they all use real science. Um, Reeve made a, a careful job of combing the newspapers and journals to find sort of interesting new scientific tools and, and techniques and introduce them into the stories. Seismographs, um, lie yeah. detectors, lie detectors, respirators, and We don't think of those things. The hidden microphone is really something. It's like, really? That was new? Yeah, it was very new. The idea that you could plant a microphone in a, in a room, in this case, it's in a building, that's actually several doors away from where they're listening and recording what's going on. Some of the science uh, didn't really last. Uh, it, it sort of got superseded, but it was all cutting-edge stuff at the time. The next book in our, in our list was... Um, a book that I really wanted to do because of its, its vital importance uh, called The Dead Letter, published in 1867, the first American mystery novel written by a woman. Um, her name was, uh, uh, her pen name was Celie Register. Uh, she was, uh, her real name was Meta Fuller. She was married to... Um, his first name, her, Victor, um, who was the publisher of Beatles magazine, and one of the hugely successful publisher of dime novels, um, cheap mystery fiction that was huge output. This actually appeared in Beatles magazine first and then came out as a novel. Um, there's only two, there was something in the air in, eight, in the mid 1860s. There are three books from that time period. There is Emmy Braddon's Tale of the Serpent, Trail of the Serpent, a book called The Notting Hill Mystery, and this one, uh, all that came out within about a year of each other, uh, the first real mystery novels with a detective uh, and uh, sort of everything we expect. Uh, what's a little strange about The Dead Letter is that you'll see there are some vague supernatural elements to it, but it's a, it's a detective novel, and it was written by a woman. Uh, and and Seely Register doesn't get enough attention. The cover I found for this um, is actually an illustration. I found it just, I, I happened to come across it. It was from the cover of Harper's Weekly. It's a drawing of the dead letter office, uh, which is what where this case starts. The dead letter office, literally where mail that can't be delivered ends up. The last book that we published is back to the humorous idea. And this one is a collection of short stories called Jim Hanvey Detective. Came out in 1923, full of slang. Boy, did I have fun writing footnotes, explaining the slang, explaining references to popular athletes of the day and so on. Jim Hanvey is kind of an early version of Columbo, kind of a sloppy looking detective who doesn't impress anybody. Uh, 
He, he is low key. He's actually friends with a number of the crooks and con men, kind of like Nick Charles, who uh, has a lot of friends in the, in the criminal circles. Uh, and he does it's detecting mainly by sort of being unexpected. They're clever stories. Um, there's no murder in a single one. They're all mainly thefts and, and crimes, financial crimes. Uh, and activist Roy Cohen is a writer who has the author who had a long career, uh, wrote until the 1950s, Jim Hanvey Detective, which is listed in uh, the Queen's Quorum, uh, the list of the best short story collections of all time, uh, and is, is really a gem. So those are the eight that have been published. There's at least one more that I want to mention because I'm so excited about it. Uh, and it's coming out, uh, doesn't come out till next spring. I'm trying to think sort of what's next. We have, what, I forgot. You oh, anticipated my question. Which yeah, was, so we have. Okay, so you've got eight. This is your primer for those who want a, a, a good foundation of where, of so we, where have, where we come from. Yes, so we have three more that are done in the sense that I finished them. They're now in various stages of being, you know, set up on the presses and all that. Um, I'm not sure I have them in the right order, but let me talk about them in sort of backward order. The, the, the newest one, the one that will come out last, is called Average Jones, written by Samuel Hopkins Adams. Uh, a collection of short stories, um, delightful, written in 1912. Hopkins uh, Adams was, made his reputation as a muckraker. He was a, a, a well, he was a colleague of Lincoln Steffens and, uh, and, and some of the other muckrakers of the day, uh, Theodore Dreiser, et cetera. Uh, but he tried his hand at crime fiction. Average Jones made the Queen's Quorum's list. Um, there are some messages in some of the stories but they're just charming. Average, his name isn't really Average, it's his nickname. Uh, he's a wealthy young man. Um, this is his hobby, but he is smart and funny and the stories are charming. Before that, the, prior to that, is gonna come out one of Barbara Peters' favorite, uh, the Metropolitan Opera Murders. So Helen Traubel, some of us are old enough to remember that she was the diva of the late 1940s and 1950s. She was the Wagnerian opera star of the Metropolitan Opera. Um, she, was a, she was the soprano. And she had the chutzpah to actually want to sing popular music too. And she appeared regularly on shows like Ed Sullivan and Jimmy Durante and so on. She actually appeared in a Broadway musical. She was a regular person. Not with, and the opera didn't like that, by the way. <laughs> Rudolph Bing thought she was somehow degrading the opera by doing these things. Uh, and she finally said, well, that's it. I'm out of here. But meanwhile, she wrote a mystery novel in her spare time, which is very much, it takes place backstage at the Met. Um, so if you love opera, you're going to love this book. It's a, it's a clever mystery, and it really just reeks of the sense of somebody on the inside talking about um, the opera. And then we get to the crown jewel, at least the one I'm really excited about, which comes out in the spring. And it's, it's a book that just doesn't get near enough attention. It's called The Conjure Man Dies. 
So The Contraband Dies is in, it was written by Rudolf Fischer, came out in 1934 uh, at the height of the Harlem Renaissance. Fisher was a physician and a jazz musician and a writer and wrote um, short stories and uh, several novels. This is the first novel featuring a black detective written by a black man. The cast is all black. Uh, it's set in Harlem. Um, and wow, it is a great twisty mystery. It clearly, is sort of a nod of the deerstalker to Sherlock Holmes in some respects. There are two detectives. There's a police detective and an amateur detective, a physician who work together. Uh, it's funny. It's got, it's filled with Harlem slang. Thank goodness Fisher wrote a glossary of Harlem slang that he published in one of his earlier books. And when we came to, to decide to publish this book, um, we looked around, we, we had the idea that maybe we could find um, his family. So Fisher died very young. Um, he, died, he died, I think, at the age of 37. And um, he was survived by, his wife survived for some time. He had one child who didn't live all that long, but he has a granddaughter named Laurel Fisher. Laurel lives in Illinois, and we managed to track her down. We found her through the internet, through a lot of chains of things. And um, I called her up and said, first of all, we want to publish your grandfather's book. And second, do you have any stories? So she gave us a couple of pages of reminiscences about her, her grandfather, Bud. Uh, and uh, we've included those in the book. So... I'm so proud of this book. It's, it's an important book in the, in the history of, of mystery fiction in America. Um, and it was a delight to edit and annotate. And I got to meet Laurel Fisher, his granddaughter. So and I think next spring, um, if we're spared, you should come back uh, and, and join me, partner, and talk about it some more so after I get a chance to read it. Well, the next book that we're just starting to work on I'm, I'm, is called Room to Swing, and it was published in the 1950s uh, by an author named Ed Lacey. So once again, it's a Black detective. This is very much in the tradition, if you can call it a tradition, of, of uh, Cotton Comes to Harlem and uh, Chester Himes' books. Um, Lacey, however, was a white guy. He was a a Jewish radical who lived in New York. This one, this book, by the way, won the Edgar for best novel. Uh, it, it was, uh, he was a Jewish radical who lived in New York. He's married to a black woman. And reading what the scholars have to say, it's a remarkable depiction of the perspective of what it was like to be black in New York um, in the late fifties. Um, and, I'm very excited about that. Room to Swing. Well, I'm excited to read them because, you know, like so, like people that dabble in this genre, you know, I thought I had a pretty good um, foundation, you know, but I didn't. These Now these are all on my TBR. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to have to postpone all the new books that are coming out. <laughs> well, you know, you can mix it up. 
That's all right. But this is, no, I think this is, you set it up front, Anthony. This is a combination of, um, these are the foundations for modern mysteries. I mean, these are, these are books that um, many of the contemporary mystery writers read um, and or knew of and built on them um, or the ones before them did. You know, obviously, uh, Michael Connelly doesn't read a lot of fiction, I don't think, from the 1890s. But the people on whom he built, uh, uh, Hilary Waugh, for example, who is very much sort of a precursor to Michael's books. Um, Waugh, who was a great student of mysteries, uh, knew what had come before, and so on. So each of the generations is, has learned from and built on uh, those who did this before them. And so that's part of it. Part of it is also just, as, as you also said, it's about um, taking an unflinching look at, uh, at our history and our behavior and our conduct over time, uh, which isn't all pride-worthy. Um, and some of it's just for fun. Um, but as I said before, and I wanted to talk a little more about the politically correct aspects of this. I mean, I... You know that before I did, before we started the series, I did a book called Classic American Crime Fiction in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And one of them um, is, an Ellery, is the first Ellery Queen mystery. Um, this is a small spoiler. I won't mention the title, that way people won't think it's a spoiler. Uh, in which uh, the villain turns out to be someone who is a, a black man passing for white and is uh, being blackmailed because of that. Uh, another one is about Charlie Chan, the first uh, great American Chinese detective, but it's set in Hawaii. That's where most of the Chan novels took place. Uh, and in the middle of, what shall I say, the disturbances, the, the turmoil of the tensions between the Japanese population, the Chinese population, and the white population. Uh, and it came out in 1925. This is a year when we had, in effect, the the uh, Johnson Act, which had an immigration quota for Asians of zero. That's how many Asian immigrants we permitted to come into the country in that in that year. Uh, we need to remember those times. We need to, when we think about today, we need to remember the prejudices and and problems of prior ages so that hopefully we can say we don't want to be like that anymore. Well, I, I, and I think that when people talk about uh, genre fiction and they sort of designate it as being less than literary, literary fiction, which, which is a whole other conversation. But I think one of the things that happens, as you pointed out, is that we see an accurate picture of that time. It's a snapshot of that time. They're, they're writing for that audience, that those, they're writing for their time and you see that. And so you can see where we were and hopefully see maybe how we've progressed and maybe how we haven't as progressed as much as we might like. Right. And also we can discover that, gee, we didn't just recently invent these problems of the roles of women and the roles of people of color and all that. We've been struggling with them for a long time in this country. Um, not obviously not always successfully, 
seeing where we are is useful, not just to learn from the past, but maybe a little bit to congratulate ourselves that, that we have come some distance from some of the attitudes. Some, not <laughs> two, nearly enough, more, but some two, distance. Two steps forward, one step back. Not yes. one step forward, two steps back. We've, yes. we're, you know, it's, so, it, we're a work, the American experiment is a work in progress. Yes. Hopefully. So the library seems to be very pleased with this. Obviously, it would be great if all of your listeners went out and bought these books. Our uh, listeners. Uh, but uh, they, uh, uh, the books are available, uh, uh, obviously, uh, on the electronic bookstores, uh, which I need to mention, um, as well as physical bookstores everywhere. Um, they are, as I said up front, they're designed for reading groups and libraries and schools and all that. And I hope that's where they end up. I hope that they end up being used as, as cornerstones of learning about the wonderful things about the mystery genre, the crime fiction, um, that it's, it's a lot more than people think of it. It, it was a revelation for me. And so as, as a reader and as your partner in the podcast, Thank you very much for doing this. They, we, as I said, we're doing them quarterly. The library has been wonderfully supportive. They have some great editors there um, who have been who've been working with. I should mention Zach Klitzman, Amy Hess, and Hannah Fries, and Becky Clark, who are the the quartet at the library, deeply involved here. Uh, and Sourcebooks, uh, which has been the sort of published term. The library has partnered with Sourcebooks in publishing these, and Sourcebooks has been great. Um, uh, on the production side and getting them out. So it's been, it's been a delight. Uh, I hope the series will continue for years. Uh, you know, we have lots more titles to do. It's, it's always great to talk to you, partner. It really is. And, and this is a wonderful thing to talk to well, you Nancy, about. Well, Nancy, you're so kind to call me partner. I, it, this was the whole podcast thing was your idea. I was delighted to be involved in it. I'm not nearly as, involved not even close to nearly as involved as you are can't believe that this is number 222 les thanks again for talking about this wonderful series and i look forward to books coming out for years and years to come so once again thank you very much my pleasure nancy 